Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Jillian. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled Build Forward Better, Climate Resilient Infrastructure. In this episode, we'll be discussing what municipalities and community leaders can start to do now to help build real structural resilience for the climate of the future, including reviewing several Canadian success stories. To this end, we'll be speaking with Sophie Gilbo from the Institute of Catastrophic Loss Reduction on the work that she and her organization has done to guide resilience building efforts across Canada. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. One of the key critiques of new developments and buildings that I keep on hearing is not just that we continue to develop in hazard prone areas, but that the physical buildings are constructed for a climate that no longer exists. So this idea of resilient infrastructure is pervasive in emergency management conversations, but I'm still left with the question, what does a resilient community look like? What do the buildings look like? Who lives there? Well, to find out, we had a chance to speak with Sophie Gilbo, who has written extensively on the topic of resilient infrastructure, in an interview recorded in December of 2021. Please listen, learn, and enjoy. Thanks for having me, Grayson. It's it's really a pleasure to be here today. So uh, my name is Sophie Gilbo, and uh, I am in charge of partnerships for the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, which is a multidisciplinary disaster risk reduction research institute that is associated with Western University and uh, supported by the Canadian property and casualty insurance industry. Uh, personally, I also come from a multidisciplinary background. Uh, I was initially trained as an architect, and uh, through my studies, I became interested in the in the rebuilding of the city of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, uh, which led me to move there following my studies in architecture and complete a master's degree in disaster resilience leadership at Tulane University. And the specific combination of, of education and experience led me to uh, really focus the work that I do now on um, how we can build and rebuild better homes and municipalities so that we can uh, reduce the impact of severe weather events on our on our communities in Canada. Uh, so are the impacts of climate change and climate emergencies felt differently based on infrastructure or different municipalities? What sort of things are, are being done about it? As uh, you know, as you're aware, we we live in a very big country, and so uh, the impacts of, of climate change uh, might mean different things for, for different communities. So whether you live in, in a northern, more remote community, or uh, if you live, uh, you know, closer to the so- southern border, you, you'll feel things differently. You know, th- there's parts of the country that are very prone to more wildfires, and there's other parts that are uh, facing more risk associated with uh, the permafrost that is that is slowly melting. Uh, other parts have been uh, facing uh, more and more um, severe rainstorm events that led to urban flooding that flooded people's basement. Uh, so all these things are happening uh, in many parts of the country. Uh, as an example, in British Columbia, we've seen a lot of this recently, right? Uh, last summer, we had extremely hot days, many of them, which were unprecedented. And uh, recently, we've seen extreme rain. And, and because of the wildfires, because of the everything that happened before, the conditions were prone to more damage associated with these extreme rains. So that being said, uh, there is a lot that's being done at the municipal level in Canada. Uh, we have noticed that communities play an incredible 
uh, role in, in leading adaptation and uh, very much at the local level, uh, whether it pertains to adapting to wildfire, um, extreme heat events, extreme rainfall events, and things like that. So, so lots happening in Canada. I'd love to hear a few oh. examples of maybe climate resilient communities or some of the things that are being done, and then maybe some of the, the pitfalls as well, some of the opportunities missed in during rebuild? Uh, for extreme rainfall events, there's actually a lot of actions that can be done. Uh, you know, I can give you the example of uh, municipalities in Ontario, Kitchener and Waterloo. They uh, needed to upgrade their uh, sewer infrastructure and to invest in stormwater management because of the new climate conditions they were facing that, you know, are expected to, uh, you know, get worse with time. And, uh, you know, that requires a lot of investment in municipal infrastructure and the city was trying to come with a creative way to to fund that. So they looked at the way they were uh, billing people for uh, stormwater management. And uh, very often in Canada, that uh, fee is associated with property tax. So you will pay a fee associated with uh, stormwater management based on the value of your property. And when they looked into that, Kitchener and, and Waterloo were like, well, this doesn't seem fair because it's not necessarily the value of your property that dictates how much you contribute to water runoffs that are uh, sent to the system and then that needs to be treated at the water treatment plant but it's it's really like a big part of it is how much pervious surfaces you have around your property let's say you're a, a strip mall and you have a lot of uh, paved uh, parking lot around you the amount of runoff you're going to contribute and send to the system it's much much higher than let's say a small home surrounded by grass and and you know uh, very pervious surfaces so they started looking at how they could separate the way they charge and they, like so that small homes that really didn't contribute much would pay much less than than bigger uh, you know, buildings with lots of um, impervious uh, surfaces around them. So they reviewed the way they were charging people to, to make it a lot more fair. And this allowed them to get a surplus of, of uh, income and fund some much more needed rehabilitation of their stormwater management system. And uh, in addition to that, and I think that's also a very important part of what cities are doing uh, in terms of adaptation is they really got down to communicating with homeowners and communicating with any property owner around the city of, hey, this is how we're going to do this. But also here are a lot of actions that you can take on your own to reduce the amount of runoffs that you send to the into the system. So, you know, they they taught them how to use uh, rain barrels to kind of reuse this water, uh, collect it during a during a rainfall and reuse it to water the plants at a later time or to create rain gardens and, and things like that. And, and the more people were taking actions on this front, the more they would get credits to lower their fees. So it was very much a way to incentivize good action and also communicate good practices, make people aware of this uh, situation and really be fair with everyone based on, on you know, their own uh, risk, their own contribution to, to the problem. And so that was a really good action and it has been replicated in other municipalities after the fact. So we consider, we consider that to be like a very strong example of, of local leadership, of influencing, of understanding your risk uh, and, and what are some of the actions you can, you can do about. So it sounds like policy and that incentivization is is one way to motivate change. What about cities that maybe haven't taken as, as much action? What are some of the reasons behind or barriers to taking action to make structures and, and cities more resilient? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And uh, I think, you know, when you look at successful adaptation initiatives, uh, there's kind of four big pillars 
around that. And uh, they're very much aligned with the, the pillars that were um, promoted in the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction. So first of all, cities have to understand their risk. Uh, if you don't understand your risk, it's much more difficult to decide what are some of the actions that, that you need to take. Uh, the second one is about governance. So governance can mean having strong leadership to implement adaptation. It can also mean avoiding the creation of new risk. Third, you have to have the potential to, or, or the capacity to invest in disaster risk reduction, right? Like a lot of these things cost money, uh, necessitate planning, necessitate the, the right staff and the right capacity. So, so if you can secure these resources or set them aside for, for this, it's, it's a very important part of adaptation. And the fourth pillar is called Build Back Better. Uh, and that means that once you suffer a loss, a big loss, then how are you going to recover in a way that is better than what the situation was before? Uh, so what are some of the practices you're going to implement? Some of the, whether construction, planning, uh, you know, in some cases, it, it does mean, you know, removing people from harm's way. In other cases, there are things you can do for adjusting buildings. So we notice that when we have successful adaptation, it's usually around these four pillars. Uh, and, and I think that also answers the question of what are some of the barriers, right? Like if, if uh, you know, we have all sorts of sizes of municipalities in Canada. Some are smaller than others. If you are a, a village located in harm's way, let's say in the wildland urban interface, you might have much more uh, limited capacity to implement, for example, some of the fire smart principles or, or to just, you know, have the, the local government in place to, to lead these actions. You know, when you look at small villages, often councillors, mayors have full-time jobs and they're doing this out of a willingness to help their community, but they don't necessarily have the time or resources in place to invest. Uh, so I would say these are the barriers. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm talking about small municipalities, but, you know, big municipalities come with some issues as well, right? Like it, it's sometimes uh, challenging to identify which department should be in charge of what. So although you have a lot of resources within a, a, a much bigger municipality, uh, let's say, uh, you know, you want a, a new park that has some uh, stormwater basins to, to collect um, rainwater during severe rainfall events. Well, there's many departments that need to be involved in that. Yeah, is it water? Is it urban planning? Is it uh, infrastructure? Like there, there's so many people that comes into play for these bigger projects that you really need to have the capacity to kind of uh, break down the silos in between governments. And I think some cities are doing that really well. And maybe other cities, there's, there's more uh, room for improvement on that front to be really able to implement and lead uh, some of these uh, successful adaptation initiatives. You know, while you were talking about some of these barriers and some of these success stories, a few things jumped to mind for me. For example, flood mapping um, has historically been a little bit lacking across Canada. And part of the argument was, if we do flood mapping, that means that people who currently live in, in houses in flood zones uh, their houses won't be worth anything. And that's certainly a risk as well. How can we understand the, and communicate the risks without having that sort of impact? Uh, or is it just in inevitable that um, there's going to be some pretty significant economic risks associated with understanding the, mm -hmm. the, the hazards? I mean, it's for sure a risk. Uh, what I would tell you is that I think uh, there is a greater risk for people not knowing they are in harm's way. And I think this can lead to much more severe 
consequences, both from like uh, economic cons- consequences and, and also like, you know, broader impact on the community, you know, uh, any major flood, any major hazard comes with a lot of trauma for the, the, the people that are faced with it. You know, of course, I think a lot of these discussions go back to the fact that we, a lot of us uh, value things like living close to the forest, uh, living close to the water, having these these sceneries, having these beautiful lots. Uh, and it's it's easy to forget that sometimes these things come with a certain amount of risk. And, you know, we have a lot of recommendations on things that can be implemented if you want to live, for example, on the well and urban interface or, or you know, of course, when you live close to the water, it's, you know, our main recommendation would be to avoid risk altogether. I think, you know, there's there's ways to build other things close to the water, like parks and, and common areas that can be enjoyed by, by more people. It's very important to communicate risk and understand risk. And I think when we fail to do that, we kind of undermine the very first step uh, that we need to to take and to understand to to create very strong adaptation programs. So specific to infrastructure, how does or how should that risk communication happen upfront if you're purchasing a new home or building or starting new construction in a in a city? Hmm. So, so the work uh, ICLR has been uh, doing on that front, and and I, I like your idea of like maybe working uh, closer with realtors and things like that, and see how we could communicate these risks. Uh, we have all sorts of of markets in Canada, and and I think maybe in some more uh, crazy markets, it's you know some people might not be even like interested in hearing this just you know access to the property is so challenging to to start with that that being said uh super important to communicate uh on on our end uh what we do at ICLR uh, a lot of the background work we do is we try to influence the way new homes are built by by working directly with construction standards uh and provincial and national uh building codes so this this is obviously uh work that is taking uh a lot of time, uh, just given the way that construction standards and building codes work. We have very strong science. We have the privilege of working with uh, researchers, whether it's wind engineers, uh, water engineers, people focused on forestry and things like that, that that know uh, very clearly what are some of the actions we can take to make our homes safer, uh, to make our homes, for example, resist better to uh, severe wind. So we know and we try to work to influence uh, the way uh, these new buildings are built uh, by going directly to provincial codes, uh, national codes. Now, as you are aware, new homes Homes are a very small percentage of uh, the existing housing stock uh, in Canada. So a lot of the work we do too is to make recommendations on how we can retrofit and improve existing homes. Uh, we reach we reach out to a lot of different audiences to to do that work. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, our institute is funded by the Canadian Property and Casualty Insurance Industry. So these are recommendations that are communicated directly to insurers that we try to have them communicate with homeowners and their policyholders. Uh, We do a lot of work with municipalities. You know, we we try to really get the word out as much as possible. Uh, This series of book called called Cities Adapt also promotes a lot of these these actions that we've taken, that, that not that we've taken, sorry, that communities have have taken and that we really uh, value as an institute. 
And now what sort of program should be in place? Again, I'm a very strong proponent of, uh, you know, disclosing risk, uh, communicating risk, uh, you know, avoiding risk as much as possible, especially for, for new developments and new homes. We know so much nowadays. We have a lot more information. It's really important to, you know, have the leadership in place to be able to uh, prohibit new development in harm's way. And, and, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's hard to avoid any risk, but when we are building with a certain amount of risk to, to build in a way that reduces this risk to, to the minimum. Are there a few more examples from these books of successful adaptations that you could share with us? Yeah, uh, of course. You know, I mentioned that a lot of the case studies that we've seen were in response to a severe weather event. Uh, one area where we've seen a lot of leadership outside of a specific event was adaptation to extreme heat events. A lot of it was driven by Health Canada and by a regional and a provincial health authorities. And when we look at heat, you know, at ICLA, we often look at hazards based on what is the impact it can have on buildings and, and, you know, consequently on the people that live in the building. But for heat, it's very much of a heat health focus. Uh, we know that when we have extremely hot days for many days in a row with like high uh, humidity, uh, that there are lots of Canadians, especially those with pre-existing health conditions, uh, that are those that are older, uh, those that live, uh, uh, you know, that, that face homelessness, uh, young infants, all these, uh, the specific population is more at risk of uh, being severely affected by extreme heat events. And so uh, there's a lot of actions that can be taken on that front, whether it's from um, heat alert and response systems, which are, which are systems that can be implemented by communities to really, uh, you know, communicate warnings and what you should do to the population, you know, stay in uh, cooler spaces, please use local pools and stuff like that. So we see a lot of that, but there's also things that can be done at the community level to reduce things like urban heat island. Uh, I think one of the good examples uh, we saw that was very interesting was coming out of uh, a specific borough in the city of Montreal called Rosemont La Petite Patrie. And what they did is that they knew they were located in a very densely uh, built area and that they were particularly at risk uh, within the city for the urban heat island effect, which really kind of increases the local temperature. So what, what they did is they commissioned a study. They were like, let's look at this very objectively. Like, what are some of the key things we could take in, in our area to reduce uh, this risk? And one of the main recommendations that came out, of, of course, it was planting more trees, but they said that roofs were, you know, they had very dark roofs and that that was really, you know, uh, accumulating a lot of the heat and making buildings uh, warmer consequently. So they were like, oh, what are some of the alternative ways we could look at building these roofs? And uh, ultimately, uh, they came up with a solution that any new roof that was uh, replaced in the in, in the borough of Rosemont needed to be either a white reflective roof or a green roof, and that no other roofs would be uh, kind of allowed within that area. And, and when you think about it, this is a really interesting opportunity to have like a large impact on an area because you are legislating this aspect, which, you know, over time, because people have to redo their roofs, will kind of, you know, have a larger and larger impact as time passes. And uh, they also found that it was not much more expensive. This was largely an area with flat roofs. So to do it with like a white membrane or, or the previous way it was built was not a very big cost difference. So this was 
fairly easily accepted by the people and then replicated in other areas of the city. So it took some good leadership, good communications, and then the, the project was widely accepted. And, and it, you know, it's a, it's a flat roof. It's not something that's excessively visible from the street. So it's not like it changed uh, the way people perceive their environment necessarily. It didn't have like a strong, a strong aesthetic uh, consideration. So it had a good impact. And I think when I spoke with them, I think it was just a year or so after the program was implemented, they had uh, retrofitted about 2,000 roofs. And I'm, and that was, I think, uh, five or six years ago. So I'm expecting that they have probably reached a much higher number. So that was a very interesting example coming out of, of Montreal. The examples you're using, I've noticed, are post-disaster, top-down, um, mm-hmm. legislated, uh, reactive measures. Are there any examples of municipalities actually preparing pre-disaster or is it, are we really just a a reactive nation? You know, uh, I I think so. I think uh, for the Montreal uh, case, it was, you know, they have had a lot of hot days, but I think uh, this was kind of, uh, you know, out of a stronger desire for preparedness. Um, and and I think that's very true with a lot of the heat uh, aspects and planning around heat. Often it's very much of a, an idea of planning for what's coming. Um, we have seen less of that uh, when it comes to extreme rainfall um, extreme uh, severe wildfire and all these things. And, and I think we've we've noticed that, I want to say, I don't have an exact number, but out of all the four reports that we, we wrote, if we look outside of heat, I would say 80 to 90% of the cases that we've seen were, were very much in response to, to an event or to uh, something that was just based. Also, because we noticed this, uh, we decide as an institute that it would be important to start getting involved in how communities uh, make decisions through the recovery phase. We didn't work too much in the recovery before, but we are starting to enter that space to uh, be there when early decisions are being made. And uh, in the past, it's been made through people reaching out to us and saying, oh, we just had a tornado in Barrie. What what could we do about this? We just had a hailstorm in in Calgary. What could we do about this? And so some of the work we did, for example, with with the city of Calgary uh, was to really sit down with local decision makers and say, oh, well, you had a hailstorm, a lot of the damage you seen was on roofs, we know what type of roofs should be rebuilt to uh, reduce the risk of these damage. And if you use a specific type of shingles and and you build it in a a specific way, uh, then you shouldn't face the same impact uh, if uh, if you have another hailstorm, which, you know, are quite uh, frequent in Alberta specifically. So this is a space we're starting to enter because we are noticing more and more that there are so many decisions that happen early in the recovery process. And, you know, recovery managers, emergency managers, they have so much on their plate uh, and it, and it's hard to always think ahead. Uh, I think in Canada and in many places around the world, uh, we do really well with response. We do really well with uh, taking people out of harm's way. Uh, but an area where we could improve is really plan ahead, uh, have some sort of uh, pre-disaster recovery planning in place that, that would involve questions such as if we have to rebuild, if we do face a severe loss, what are some of the things we want to consider in that rebuild? Uh, what are some of the things we should try to 
secure funding for? Uh, you know, if we know that our community is, is in the wildland urban interface, uh, what are what are the seven disciplines of FireSmart that we can really look at implementing strongly when we when we rebuild? There's so many decisions that happen in that recovery period that uh, we're hoping that to have some maybe some more science or information about uh, some of the adaptation actions that can be implemented to prevent future events might might be uh, helpful in, in helping the recovery or, or a more resilient recovery of these communities. I really like that framing of the Build Back Better as a preparedness activity, not just a recovery activity. Uh, it's very hard to bring up the idea of building back better when you're neck deep in response. And uh, as we know, the recovery begins at the same time as response. And sometimes you're so far down the, the build back the way it was road before you can even start thinking about building back better. So it does sound like it's a preparedness activity. Is that fair to say? I, I believe so. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, emergency managers obviously are, are often tasked to deal with all four pillars of emergency management. That being said, uh, often the requests that come in are, are very much response driven. And, you know, there's so many urgent needs that it's very hard to consider preparedness. Uh, so, uh, you know, we do feel that as, as hard as it is, it is important to make time for that. It is important to, to think about how we will respond in a way that is that doesn't necessarily mean rebuilding back exactly the way it was. And, and you know, uh, that's part of the work we do. Uh, we're trying to influence uh, all sorts of stakeholders, including insurers, to, to say, oh, these are, you know, some measures that are often inexpensive uh, to implement and that are easier to implement when you rebuild, right, as well, because you are dealing with kind of a blank canvas. So so when you have these opportunities to do things better, it's important to look at them and, and say, hey, we, you know, we've just faced a, a very traumatic, severe event. Uh, these are some of the ways we can avoid facing these consequences again in, in the future. So lots of opportunities there. And, and, I, and I agree with you, uh, preparedness, uh, you know, needs there needs to be a very strong focus in, in Canada and for Canadian communities and all Canadians to to really um, you know think about that um, more closely and, and see how we can maybe better respond outside of you know just getting people in harm's way out of harm's way uh, after an event. You know we've talked a lot about the infrastructure side of things. What about the people that live there? We know that the most vulnerable people in our society often live in the most vulnerable infrastructure or in the most vulnerable places. Mm -hmm. How can you address that issue through the same sort of resilient cities approach? Uh, I can give you maybe one example that, that we saw out of the, the report we, we, we did on, on heat help. It was, a, you know, the city of Hamilton. And uh, they knew that, you know, as I mentioned before, when you're facing uh, extremely hot days, uh, one of the key priorities is to get people outside of these very hot environments and get them to cooler places, right? And so uh, we had a case where two uh, landlords of uh, fairly large apartment building, very high apartment buildings, had uh, lots of tenants that, or most tenants did not have air conditioning. And so one of the two buildings had an air conditioned room. And they were like, why don't we get together uh, we partner and we communicate with these people that are, you know, living in somehow uh, heat vulnerable settings uh, about about the availability of the space when needed. And, and, and in addition to that, they publish, uh, you know, little uh, posters in the building saying like, hey, these are things, you know, if it's a very hot day, you might want to consider like closing your blinds, uh, you know, opening your windows at night, uh, checking in on your neighbor, a very big aspect of it, right? Checking in if they're okay. Um, so 
they really promoted that kind of communications aspects within the within the buildings and really worked together to say, hey, well, all of our residents are vulnerable. Uh, why should only half of them have access to to the space? Got together really, you know, with the hope of, of doing a good action and protect these people. Uh, so they realized not only that there was there were vulnerabilities within uh, faced by by their tenants, uh, and they actively worked together to you know. And it's a pretty straightforward, simple solution when you think about it, right? But um, you know, it did, it did, uh, you know, take an effort to go reach out and, you know, form a, a more formal partnership with, with the, the next uh, building over and, and create uh, this availability for, for the people that didn't have it. Um, so that's one action. Uh, I mean, there's, there's other actions that we've seen. Uh, I think it was Sudbury uh, decided to make a free transit for all during extreme uh, heat events to be able to uh, take people and an accessible transit as well for wheelchairs and things like that to, to move people to some cooling stations. So, um, so lots of things can be done, but, uh, is there enough being done? I don't know. I think there's always opportunities to to do more and really look into these questions more more closely. Let's take take off our realism hats and put on our hypothetical hats. You know, if you <laughs> could snap your fingers and have a, a resilient city, where do those decisions get made? What does it look like? Who lives there? Uh, what we've seen a lot is leadership at the municipal level, but I, I think it needs to go higher than that as well. And we are starting to see a change with like the, the national building code. Uh, you know, there's new considerations being made about, uh, for example, initially the building code was designed to really uh, protect life inside the building. And now we're starting to think about it in terms of like, you know, going above that and saying like, how can we increase the performance of our building to to keep people safer, but also to ensure we don't as uh, severe losses moving forward, right? And so that's part of it is really looking at all levels, uh, all levels of government uh, and making sure that the actions are all aligned. And, and that's not always easy to do it. It takes a lot of discussions. It takes a lot of collaborations within ministries and departments and, and all of that. But but it's it's so important if, if we want to get there. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, uh, understanding risk, um, having strong policymakers in place, investing in risk reduction and building back better. These are really at the very basis uh, of what we need to make uh, Canadian communities safer. Understanding which is so key if we want to avoid creating new risk, if we want to, you know, really target our actions towards our most important risk like you know and there's many cities that face more than one risk right so understanding risk is part of you know really looking at like oh hey i'm at risk of extreme heat i'm at risk of wildfire uh, how do I prioritize this? How do I make sure that the actions I implement don't create more risk? You know, um, so so there's there's a lot of this global thinking, uh, and then you know putting some money aside for that. Uh, it will take investments, but the investments you do, we have several studies that have shown like the cost benefit analysis of of, of specific actions, and most of them show such a big uh, return ratio of like when you take the actions early on as opposed to when you respond, have to rebuild, and and then the cost is just so much larger. Um, so to really take these opportunities to plan ahead, think, and really, you know, be the main actors of, of how we're going to 
we're going to build us moving forward, right? Like um, we have the, the village of Lipton that completely burned down last summer. So how is this going to be rebuilt in a way that that really, you know, makes people feel safer, you know, or reduces their risk to the minimum and communicating what does that mean in terms of vegetation management, in terms of the new structures that could go in, in terms of the whole planning of the community, where are your fire breaks in the community? You know, there's, there's so many questions to look at. And I think the more we think about it ahead of time, while we live in the city to understand our current risk, the more we're able to take better decisions moving forward. And I think to me that that is what a resilient city would be to really face, understand and face the risk we have. And, and, you know, and actions, I mentioned a lot of policymakers, there's so many actions that needs to be taken by homeowners really to reduce their risk, right? So, Everyone shares this burden, uh, and and when we have a severe loss, everyone shares it as well, right? Like it's our often our, our taxpayers' dollars that pay for the recovery, or you know our our insurance policy might go up, right? So we're all impacted by these changes. It would be, you know, it wouldn't be responsible to say, oh, you know, the government's going to pay for it. We are the government. We pay for these recoveries, whether it's through our insurance policies that might go up or through, uh, through you know, our taxes that pay for it, right? So we are all responsible for taking action if we don't want to, you know, face the burden of, of covering the extra costs of, of uh, not implementing adaptation. So it sounds like the time is now to know the risks and, and prepare and take some leadership both up and down wherever you currently are. How do we do this? Where can we go to find out more? Uh, well, we, we at ITEL have a lot of resources available. So our website is iclr.org. Uh, and uh, specifically, we, we've discussed a lot of, of uh, the actions taken by municipalities today. Uh, so if you go at citiesadapt.com, you will be able to find the four latest reports that we've published, uh, which look at extreme rainfall, uh, extreme heat, uh, extreme weather in general, severe wildfire, and we have an upcoming book that should be released in early 22 about a climate resilient infrastructure. Uh, so I, I really invite you, if you have any questions, to reach out to me personally or, or to really uh, go to our website and, and see some of the resources we have over there. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast and for everything that you're doing to reduce and manage risk in, in Canada. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was a great experience. That was a fascinating interview. Grayson, what did you think? I really like this idea of purposefully using policy and standards to build resilience. And that thought of having a, a build back plan before the incident occurs is brilliant. I've often thought of policy and standards as ancient scripts from a, a time long past, but to be fair, it was building codes and that sort of thing that got us to where we are. So maybe they're the answer as well for the future, as long as we can align them with the principles of resilience. So a very interesting way of affecting change in emergency management. And on Just the kidding. topic of affecting change, uh, I hear you've done a little bit of research onto the topic as well. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, what I think is really interesting is the connections between uh, what Sophie was talking about and existing theories on behavior change and choice architecture. To kind of get into this, there's kind of this concept that we are dealing with behavioral biases and they keep us from engaging in preparedness or mitigation. So kind of thinking things like the risk or the hazard is not that bad. Um, you know, someone else is someone else's responsibility. It won't happen to me. I'm too busy or it costs too much. Um, and so I think what Sophie's really speaking to in a lot of the examples that she provided are that these policies that we introduce could be incentives or drivers for people to make changes that 
um, they maybe usually wouldn't make and uh, it would benefit them and whole of society. So policies like retrofitting your home or planting some helpful landscaping, these things could be uh, made easier or cheaper with kind of the policies that we make. Related to this, um, I was listening recently to Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, who talks about choices that we make. And one thing that uh, Professor Whitmarsh works on are moments of change, which can be opportunities for people to act on their values or have a change in values completely. And some examples of moments of change are significant circumstances or contexts. It could be biographical events like becoming a parent, moving houses, or retiring. Um, Or it could be what she refers to as exogenous social, technological, or environmental changes. So uh, in short, kind of just saying it could be a change in your workplace or an extreme weather event. So maybe you see where I'm going here. But um, post-disaster, you know, we always talk about it as key moments for adaptation work, but it could also be seen as key moments for when people are actually ready to make changes around preparedness and mitigation. That window of opportunity post-disaster is certainly present more and more. And if emergency management is about anything, it's about affecting positive change for a more resilient future. Uh, And on that note, I think for the tool of the trade today, I'm just going to point you right back to the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction's Cities Adapt books, available for free on their website. There are four books at the time of uh, this recording, including Adaptation Strategies for Heat, Rain, Fire, and Extreme Weather. And they've done their homework with these and, and made sure that the recommendations align with things like the Sendai Framework and FireSmart. And best of all, they are filled with Canadian examples of resilience building, not just examples of disaster and loss, which is a really nice change. Uh, We'll put the link in our show notes, but after going through them, I can honestly say these are a must read if you are involved in municipal emergency management. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Sophie Gilbo for sharing their time and expertise with us on the topic of climate resilient communities. Thanks for listening. Just before we go, this episode is brought to you in part by the Boys and Girls Club and Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Edmonton and area, also called BGC Bigs. They need you now. Consider sharing your time with a young person. Over the past years, BCG Bigs heard from young people that having a mentor means they are less likely to have anxiety, feel isolated, or struggle with their mental health but there are over 600 young people waiting for a mentor in their lives today. Explore how you can get involved and watch our communities change one life at a time. Join BGC Biggs for a virtual coffee or apply now at bgcbigs.ca, your priority, their future. This episode was also brought to you by Virtual Open House for Edmonton Public Schools, who's put together a quick little audio clip, which I will play for you now. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to an Edmonton Public Schools virtual open house. Ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs and find the one that feels right. All from the comfort of home. Find virtual event dates and learn how to make the most out of your online visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. 
As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.